Hey, Tom Tilley here. In today's briefing, the New South Wales election, which is tomorrow and could send Australia into almost wall-to-wall Labor governments. If the polling's correct, Labor will win power in New South Wales tomorrow, meaning only the Tasmanian government will be Liberal. So who is the Labor leader, Chris Minns? And can he blast Dominic Perrottet out of government? They're being really nice to each other as well. Like, both Dom and Chris are kind of open with the fact that if they weren't trying to knock each other off the perch, they'd probably be mates and go Mm. hang out. Yeah, they are a different generation of leaders. Relatively young, only 40 and 43, kind of uh, Gen Y elders. So we're going to find out what will decide the New South Wales election in this episode of The Briefing. First, the headlines... It's Friday the 24th of March and Jan Fran is here to reveal who she'll be voting for tomorrow. Okay, well, I won't be doing that, but I will reveal (laughs) right here, right now, that I definitely will not be drawing a cock and balls on the ballot. And if you're heading out to the state election tomorrow, please do not do that because your vote won't count and the older I get, the more more deep respect I have for democracy. Enjoy the snags, everybody. The snags. The cock and balls. Jen, I hadn't really even considered doing that until you mentioned it, so thanks for the suggestion. (laughs) See, now that's going to have the opposite effect, isn't it? so funny you were saying the leaders are relatively young. I had a friend the other day say to me, why do all of the premiers look like us and our friends? (laughs) She was really offended by that. (laughs) Yes. All right, what is the first headline, Jan? What are we starting off with? Well, we're staying, staying in politics, actually, but this time it's not New South Wales politics, it's federal politics. And yesterday we told you that uh, federal cabinet was to vote on the wording of a voice to parliament uh, for the referendum, and that has happened. The Prime Minister has revealed what the wording is going to be. That's the wording that's going to be put forward, obviously, to Australians in the referendum on the First Nations vote to parliament that will happen later this year. It will read, a proposed law to alter the constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve this uh, this proposed alteration? Yeah, that was the Prime Minister there. Uh, you could probably hear in his voice he was tearing up a little bit, unveiling the question um, at the press conference yesterday. He did have to pause a few times to pull himself together as well, Tom. I don't know if you saw it. Mm, yeah. A big moment for Anthony Albanese. He was standing there um, with the referendum working group, a bunch of prominent Indigenous Australians. It was a historic moment. So the reaction, um, the Nationals, One Nation, United Australia Party came out straight away saying they'll be opposing it. The Liberal Party, well, we don't know exactly what they're thinking. Um, Peter Dutton hasn't declared his position, but he continued to criticise Anthony Albanese's handling of this, saying he still needs more detail. So it looks like he might say no, but not sure yet. Mm. Look, here are next steps. So there's a few sort of logistical things that have to happen. The bill um, which contains these proposals is going to be introduced into federal parliament. This is happening next week. It will then be referred to what's called a parliamentary committee. They're going to examine the wording of the bill. And then Parliament's expected to hold a vote in June on the proposal. If that is approved, the referendum will happen sometime after September. So Peter Dutton has got to get his position together at the very least uh, before June when Parliament is expected to vote on the proposal. That's not really a lot of time. 
And Senator Lydia Thorpe has clashed with police while attempting to interrupt an anti-trans rights rally in Canberra. So this is the same protest group that involved neo-Nazis in Melbourne on the weekend. Um, They're in Canberra now. And so the anti-trans pro-women activist Kelly Jean Keane Minshall was on the microphone speaking outside Parliament House yesterday when Lydia Thorpe came towards her wearing an Aboriginal flag shouting, you are not welcome. They know what biological sex is and they celebrate women like So then several police officers blocked her from approaching the speaker and then she falls to the ground after being pushed away by one of the officers. Um, They then try and help her get up, but she starts crawling away and eventually gets up and rejoins the crowd of pro-LGBTQ counter-protesters and their protest was actually much bigger than the anti-trans protest. Mm. This is a very intense um, footage to watch because, you know, you're seeing a senator essentially get pushed to the ground by police. It's very chaotic. There's a lot of yelling, which, you know, we, we heard there as well. It's no surprise really that Labor sought what it says is urgent advice from the AFP and the AFP has said that they're going to mm. review the incident. Basically, Lydia Thorpe has said that she was flat out assaulted. I think she, she used the word pulverised. She said mm. she was pulverised by the police and that they need to answer for the assault. But also she was questioning why the government even let somebody like Kelly Jean uh, Keane Minshall into the country. I think she called those people or the people that were protesting against trans rights filth. I think watching the footage, pulverised is a, is a massive exaggeration and you know, we saw Lydia Thorpe um, create a big scene um, at the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras where she laid down in front of a truck and held up the whole Mardi Gras. So she has form on creating a massive scene here. I think if you oppose someone's protest, you don't go and stop them speaking on the microphone, a bit like those students trying to stop Malcolm Turnbull speaking at Sydney Uni. You know, we still have freedom of speech in this country, even if you don't like what someone is saying. Yeah, I mean, I think she had a right to approach them. And I think that, you know, what's what's that saying that people say? It's like, if, if you're not causing massive disruption, you're not having a protest, you're having a picnic. And, you know, Lydia Thorpe, I think, is it comes from a very sort of strong activist background. Um, and she's she's not afraid to really kind of get in there and, and, and be involved in protests. I really felt uncomfortable with the degree to which she was pulled to the ground by police. I really don't think that that had to happen. They could mm. have very easily moved her away without having to throw her to the ground like that. But uh, I guess I guess we'll see what the AFP says. If they say they're mm. investigating, then um, hopefully that, that it would become clearer as to why that even happened. And the CEO of TikTok is facing intense questioning from lawmakers uh, in Washington this morning. He's not. My colleague, Representative Burgess, uh, a few minutes ago exposed that TikTok and ByteDance share legal teams. You confirmed this, correct? Our general counsel is uh, an American uh, lawyer. So that's the TikTok boss, Xiao Chu, being grilled in the House Committee on Energy and Commerce about user safety and data. Uh, The concern is that data from TikTok is being accessed by the Chinese government. Um, And this comes after President Joe Biden demanded TikTok's Chinese owners, ByteDance, sell down their stake in the company or face a ban in the US. Yeah, it's not surprising that um, that the boss is now facing a parliamentary committee in the US. I think this was always going to come to a head in this way because uh, there have been concerns about TikTok, um, particularly from the US government, for uh, many months. Indeed, probably years now. 
the issue is that uh, it's owned by a Beijing-based company, ByteDance, as you say. Now, Chu has insisted that user data is stored in the US. He says that the app is not even available in mainland China, but the reps here are really going hard. Like they are not holding back. I think there was one representative who just straight out said TikTok should be banned in the US and I bet you're going to say everything that you need to say to stop that from happening. Um, so, you know, they've really got raised eyebrows in in the committee for him and I imagine the 150 million US TikTok users are watching this intently, particularly if you really like the app um, mm. and uh, and don't want it to be banned. I don't know. It sounds like pure theatre to me, you know, these old politicians thumping the desk about TikTok. Um, Donald Trump tried to ban it and failed to do so. So until they actually do something substantial, I feel like it's a lot of hot air. The difference between TikTok and, and the other social media platforms, which, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's been hauled before these sorts mm. of committees before, but it really is that connection to China. And there's, you know, in the same way that we've kind of had an intense and slightly deteriorating relationship with China over the last few years, it's been a similar sort of situation in, in the United States as well. Just sort of, you know, these tensions are boiling under the surface. That's, that's the key difference. Um, and also that it attracts um, a much younger, audience than say Facebook or Instagram and there's a lot of concern around teen mental health and videos promoting suicide, self-harm, eating disorders, those those sorts of things. But look, you could be totally right and we could be here in a year or two years time mm. talking about the same thing and have nothing happen. And here's a weird story. A new species of giant trapdoor spiders has been discovered by Australian researchers because you know what we could use in this country? You know what we need more of? Spiders. Um, this one's a particularly rare and, mm. and huge spider as well. It's found hiding under a trapdoor that is made of silk and soil um, found in uh, west of Brisbane. So these kind of spiders, they apparently make trapdoors to protect themselves and prey on other insects. They can grow to five centimetres, which doesn't sound big, but for a spider, that is big. I like my spiders to be zero centimetres. <laughs> um, and researchers say that the females can live for over 20 years in the wild. Mm. There you go. Do you well, like spiders, Tom? the smaller they are, the harder they are to see, Jan. So it's a, it's a tricky trade-off. Um, so they sit under their trapdoor by day, so you won't see them, but then the trapdoor sits ajar at night so they can jump out and grab other insects. The good news is they're not harmful or poisonous to us humans. Oh, there you go. That's the clip. That's what everybody wants to know. So, is this spider going to kill me or no? It <laughs> sounds like it's not. Even like huntsmen's, um, which also aren't poisonous, they can still scare the shit out of people. Yeah. Hey, I was um, reading something that the CSIRO put out. They said that there was an estimated 10,000 species of spider <laughs> in Australia, well, which seems what, like too many for me. It's what we're famous for. All right, we'll catch you next week on the podcast, Jan. Great having you here. In a moment, I'm going deep on the New South Wales election. All right, now to tomorrow's election in New South Wales. If you're listening around the country, the big question for the national audience is, Will we now have wall-to-wall Labor governments across the whole country except for Tasmania, the only place that will have a, a Liberal government if Labor win the New South Wales election tomorrow? And polling says they will. So let's find out what the big issues have been. 
and what is going to decide this election tomorrow. We're speaking to Sasha Barbagat. She's the host of a brand new podcast. Um, it's part of our family here at Listener. It's called This Arvo. Um, it's all about Sydney. It's a daily news podcast. A bit like the briefing, Sasha. Yes, we took some inspiration from you guys, Tom. (laughs) We really did. The only thing we've done is flip the headlines on the bottom. So we just want people in Sydney to feel like they've got a podcast for them. News, um, some fun as well. Like it's just a really, uh, you know, daily up to date. Yeah. Get your feed. What's going on in your city, basically, if you're in Sydney? And you had a cracking story about a 70% increase in the number of people losing their licences over the last two years, which is... Just crazy. Yeah. So you've been watching the election closely. Um, you're a Sydney girl. Mm. Um, you follow the news. You've been reporting on Sydney and New South Wales for many years. So if Dominic Perrottet, the current Premier, loses, do you think one of the main reasons will be the avalanche of scandals and departures from his own side? You know, sometimes I feel like the mud doesn't stick with Dominic Perrottet. I feel like there have been so many things that he's had mm. to fight through this election campaign. But you're right, there there have been kind of so many over the last couple of years as mm. well. Think how we came into the position with Gladys Berejiklian going off to ICAC. So, you know, you'd think that eventually something is going to stick and voters are going to turn around and say no way. Also, the fact that it's been 12 years of a coalition mm. government in New South Wales, it is typically a Labor state. So this is quite a strange trend for New South Wales. Uh, I think a lot of people are thinking his time's probably up and the Liberal Party's time in power is up. But, you know, I can't call it until I see it because mm. I still remember Bill Shorten's vote, uh, you know, all those years ago. And everyone, 2019, yeah. That's it. Everyone thought he was going to win and he didn't. So until it happens, that's when I think people will believe it. Yeah, so you look at the scandals, as you said, the way he came to power, which was only a year and a half ago, was mm. because Gladys Berejiklian got dragged into ICAC for not declaring her relationship with a dodgy coalition MP, Daryl Maguire. Then you had the John Barillaro scandal, which rolled on for months about his appointment post-politics. He'd already done a lot of damage in politics. He's had David Elliott, the police minister, swinging punches on his way out. Several (laughs) other people have had to either get out of the party completely or step aside from the cabinet or other roles. Yeah. You're saying that you don't think that sticks to him, the Premier himself? It just feels like when I've been talking to people and kind of following, you know, like I'm one of those people who reads the comments on articles Mm. and, and, you know, I'm on Reddit all the time. And I just get this sense that I think Dominic Perrottet made a big impact when he pulled New South Wales through COVID. I think people were really impressed that he was willing to kind of say, no, we're taking masks off now. Mm. You know, yes, we're reopening this. And then the recovery post-COVID, he has been very keen to kind of get everything back to normal, Mm. quote unquote. And I think people liked him for that because Mm. by the time we got through the 2021 lockdown, people were so over it and they liked that someone was coming in and going, yep, we're going to keep moving forward. We're not stopping. So I do think that he has made himself popular to an extent in that way. Well, he needed a lot of conviction to ride out the Delta wave. So yes. he he came into power in late 2021 mm. when we're all opening up, things looking good. Then that Christmas was destroyed in <laughs> basically the whole country. Yes. Um, but New South Wales, it happened just as we were opening up and it was a scary time. That's yeah. when a lot of us got COVID, went to hospitals, saw how stretched the staff were. But as you say, he sort of toughed it out and said, we're going to get on with this. It, it was a test that I think showed a bit of metal. Yeah, that's right. And I think if you look at the election campaign to date with Chris Minns, 
both have seemed kind of wishy-washy a little bit, like no one willing to really go hard on things. But I think Dom won that race two years ago or a year and a half ago when he said, we're going to come out of this New South Wales. We're not going to keep stuck in these old restrictions. I, I do think he won some votes that way. So Chris Minns, the new Labor leader, relatively new, mm. um, and potentially the new Premier, depending what happens on Saturday. Let's talk about him because actually before he came into the Labor leadership, they had a series of leaders and scandals, you know. Think back to Luke Foley, oh, who remember. lost the job for filling up an ABC journalist. Mm-hmm. Like, disgusting. Chris Minns seems to have been relatively disciplined. Mm. Oh, yeah, and he's been safe. That's how I would describe Chris Minns and Dom to an extent. But, you know, I think that he has wanted to present a very clean outlook to the people of New South Wales to be like, hey, I'm I'm safe, but I'm going to, you know, fight for what you want mm. sort of thing. I look at the leaders' debates that we've had, and there was one this week, which Chris Minns won with the undecided voters in the room. And they're being really nice to each other as well. Like both Dom and Chris are kind of open with the fact that if they weren't trying to knock each other off the perch, they'd probably be mates and go mm. hang out which is an interesting tactic. I don't think I've ever really seen that before play out quite so publicly, the fact that both leaders really like each other. It always seems really vitriolic. So I think they're a new generation of leaders. You look at their age. So Chris Minns is 43, Dominic Perrottet's only 40, relatively young for politicians. And yeah, they do seem to have embraced a different tone to the old school politicians, which just slag each other off all the time. And they do seem to genuinely understand the younger generation a bit better. Yeah, you know, I think that's a really fair assessment. And with the younger generation, (laughs) the other week we lost it in the newsroom here at Listener because Dom admitted to vaping, you know, Mm. just stuff like that. Well, they're basically Gen Y. They're Gen Y elders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're millennials, really. I think they're in that very top bracket. They just fit in. Same as me. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, take it any way you can. Um, But, you know, both have really tried to, I think, appeal to younger voters. I actually spoke to Chris Minns not long ago and kind of said, well, it always seems like we're hearing about families in elections Mm. and kids. And there's so many people these days who are in their 20s and 30s and 40s who don't have kids. So what are you doing to win over the votes? And that's when it all came down to rentals and housing affordability and Mm. stuff like that. And Dominic Perrottet's also been really vocal about that stuff. Yeah, well, on housing, what do you think stood out? Because for me, it's Dominic Perrottet's move to stop stamp duty being a one-off charge for first home buyers. Has that been the the standout for you in terms of housing policy or has Labor been able to land some blows there too? Well, I think Labor has made the point that it's a forever tax. So you would have to pay that every year. And I, I look at tolls, for example, right? And so in New South Wales, we pay lots of road tolls and it goes up by CPI every year. Mm. And so you were paying $2 10 years ago. Now you're paying $7, $8, $9. Mm. And Labor's point with the Liberals' housing policy is that that's what it's going to eventually become, is that it's a forever tax. You have to pay it every year. It's an annual land tax. Labor's gone with the option instead of saying we're going to completely axe stamp duty for homes up to $800,000 and up to $1 I believe, is the the lid for the next one. They're going to lower it. So the idea is that if you're a first home buyer trying to get into the market, you don't have to pay stamp duty at all. You don't have to pay a land tax. Yeah, so I think... Even better. Yeah, I I do think Labor actually managed to uppercut the Premier on that one. Or return, yeah. Return serve. (laughs) Now we're going tennis. (laughs) I mean, we can stick with boxing if you want. Um, My other perception as as an observer to this, you know, being a Sydney resident is that 
Chris Min's really cut through early on by talking about the road tolls because they piss off so many people. Mm -hmm. But they also are very symbolic of the big assets in New South Wales that have been privatised, which is something that after years of doing it, the Coalition have now promised not to do it again. So it seems to be an admission that that's not how people want to fund their assets here in, in New South Wales, selling them off. But as the campaign wore on, it seemed like Chris Min's didn't have a lot of other ideas, whereas mm-hmm. Dominic Perrottet in the last few weeks has been pulling a few rabbits out of the hat. So he's putting up speed limits on some motorways yes, in Sydney. Which is unheard of. Yeah, I've never heard of a politician <laughs> putting up speed limits. And I know people prefer to drive fast, even though it's more dangerous. Yeah. The other thing that really caught my attention was this savings account for kids. Mm-hmm. So he's brought out this idea kind of late in the campaign that Every child in New South Wales will get 400 bucks a year that goes into a savings account that'll compound until you're 18 when you can finally access it. Wow, what a sweetener. I mean, especially oh for him with seven kids, but for, <laughs> for any family. Yeah, well, he can't pay a house deposit for seven kids. Come on, he'd be completely in debt. Um, yeah, that one was that he used at one of his um, big election rallies. Um, and you're right, it was very late in the piece. I think it was last week or the weekend before. And that one... I don't think it flew the way he wanted it to. I feel like people were kind of like, well, hang on, you know, we've got all this money that's missing from the budget and we're just, we're adding to that with this kind of savings account for kids, a super for kids. Um, I do think that actually flopped a little bit. I don't think it was as popular as he was hoping it was going to be. And I think with the cost of living issue at the moment, which has been the biggest issue Mm. for this state election, no doubt. People are barely talking about anything else except for that. I think that people were kind of upset going, well, hang on, how are we going to fork out 400 bucks for our kids every year in order to get this $50,000 bonus when they're 18? So what you're talking about there is the additional element of this policy where if the parents add to the government $400, yeah. they get a bonus? Is that how it works? Yes. So the government puts in 400 right? Yeah. For the everyone. Gov- that's right. So that would sit there as 400 bucks. Great. Hey, $400 when you're 18. You have a great night out. But No, no, but it's 400 every year. Isn't only it? if the parents or the family or the caregivers are putting that money in. So right. Yeah. So it, it has to be matched. So they'll go, hey, here's the first one, but then they have to keep up with it over that period. So the government gives you 400 mm-hmm. and then the following year, if your parents also give you 400 the government chips in 400 as well? Yes, that's right. So they'll match it up to 400 bucks. Ah, see, that's not so good because yeah. that benefits wealthier families. And this whole idea, I thought, was to level the playing field that all kids had a good savings deposit. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's mm. why some people were upset. Obviously, you know, it'll work for some, but for others, $400 a year. Imagine you have three kids and you're on one income, fail. So here we are mm-hmm. the day before. You're not prepared to guess, are you? No, I really, I'm really not. I think until it happens, and it was the same for the federal election, even with the polling and everything. But the polling was right this time. So they made mistakes in the polling in 2019. They got it very wrong. And that came after other polling problems around the world where they basically underestimated the right wing vote. That's right. But they made some significant changes to the way polling's happened since then. And it has been more accurate. So... Mm. Get off the fence. Come on. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I'm going to go Chris Minns, but he's going to have to use crossbench support to form government. Yeah. That's my tip. And I think that's what most people are expecting as well. I don't think it's going to be a landslide, mm. um, but I think he will, Labor will form power. But we'll have to wait and see, obviously. Can't wait. You know, Saturday night. Let's see. All right. Well, anyone who liked 
hearing Sasha's analysis. You can get more of her every day on the podcast, The Savo. Get around it. It's from the family here at Listener. Um, we're trying to bring you new and better podcasts all the time to suit your needs, where you are and what you want to hear. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. All right. Thank you so much for listening to The Briefing on your Monday to Friday episodes this week. Uh, tomorrow, the weekend briefing with Jamila Rizvi. Jamila, who are you speaking to this week? This weekend, I have chatted to Lizzie Who, and when she started telling me about her family in the chat, honestly, the story she has to tell about her dad in particular makes you wonder why they're not on tour with her. Lizzie is, of course, a stand-up comedian, but as I discovered in our conversation, she's also a writer, a noodle enthusiast. She's the child of a Hollywood-style love story. She owns a rescue greyhound. And as she's only recently discovered, she is also a person of colour. She's honestly absolutely hysterical and she's one of the newer names hitting the Melbourne Comedy Festival over the next month. And oh, it is such a treat. You don't want to miss this episode. All right, that's Jamila Rizvi with The Weekend Briefing. Lizzie Hu um, is the guest. Hope you enjoy that. A big thank you to the hardworking briefing team that make this podcast possible. Dan Mullins, Eleanor Harrison Dengate, Helen Smith, Nicole Castles, Poppy Manzi, Sarah Boll and Matt Curry. Listener.